Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby Doo, Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Yep, still trapped in our houses. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's getting uh, quite tiresome at this point. Not tiresome enough that I'm going to protest being locked down or that restrictions have eased. Just go out living my life normally, as other people think is totally okay to do. And especially considering that the only nation, as far as I know, that's done widespread antibody testing has been Spain. And the results for any suburban to rural area have been like 4% of the population having antibodies you know it's higher in urban areas but not high enough there's just no herd immunity i don't know what they're hoping to achieve i just but at this point i'm too tired of arguing that people shouldn't need to die for the economy Mm. so i'm just like i mean whatever i guess we'll all just die and then i'll say i told you so i mean like what it's gonna end up like the the avian flu of 57 58 where it surged after kids went back to school after summer break and they went back to class and they just sneezed on each other and they gave them all disease and then you know a million people died oh that's sad oh that's sad you know uh, it could (laughs) could be preventable if only we weren't i mean douchebags yeah if only we um cared about each other huh well anyway anyway that's not gonna happen uh (laughs) hello everybody this is bill robertson berlin On this bleak Thanksgiving day, it seems good to be broadcasting to an America which is still at peace with the world. But while you over there are enjoying your turkey dinner, the news for the democracies is still ominous. The Ministry of Propaganda has just announced that 14 million tons of Allied shipping have been sunk since the start of the war. And tonight there is further good news for the Germans. And that is that this great city lies in utter and tranquil calm, marking the 26th consecutive day without any sign of enemy planes. nothing but continue to talk that's what i've been saying night after night nothing nor are any planes expected uh hello everybody welcome to what's in the basket podcast i'm amelia and i'm joined by candace hello no tiff today because she's uh, educating canada's youth and she fell again very important to note (laughs) (laughs) she busted her ass once again, her equilibrium is terrible for someone that's that close to the ground. It's... Well, and also in a place that snows so often, you'd want, like, sure footing. We're going to have to, like, take, like, you know, like, snow tires and wrap chains around her feet every time she leaves the house. It's May. We're going to have to cut off her feet and replace it with one of those, like, lead bottoms, like those clowns that don't fall over. I like that idea. Boop, woo, boop, woo. 
That's going to be hard. <laughs> so, yeah, it's another gruesome, twosome episode where we can say anything we want about Tiff and she can't do anything except cut it out because she edits the show. But, I mean, she doesn't. So, today we are doing the Dana Andrews drama, Nazi drama, Berlin correspondent. Caper. It's a caper, yeah. Despite this being a Dana Andrews feature, his second build after Virginia Gilmore. And where to even begin? So this movie, Berlin Correspondent, 1942, it is um, rarely, you know, when we get to (laughs) the kind of sausage making you know kind of side of the whole Hollywood studio apparatus do we come across a movie that is so blatantly supposed to be another movie and Berlin Correspondent is one of those movies it's foreign correspondent but for the kind of person who eats hot dogs from gas stations that's my appraisal of this movie that's if if you're that kind of person this movie's for you that's why this movie isn't for me that's why I prefer foreign correspondent but some people like getting food poisoning from a 7-Eleven, and they're entitled to that. You make choices in life, just like Goldwyn <laughs> decided to make Berlin correspondent. Well, not really Goldwyn. I mean, Goldwyn slash Fox slash, you know, the hot dog cart, literally, that was making that whole that whole partnership. The partnership between Goldwyn and 20th Century Fox is a little complicated. In some parts, it's a distribution vehicle, and then in other ways, it's so Goldwyn can kind of keep his stable of stars without actually having to pony up any of the capital required to make movies. Um, <laughs> it, it, it solved a lot of problems, but it, it created more problems. And this is, a, this is an example of one of those problems. <laughs> this is a problem. This, this is movie's a, a problem. A child, an unwanted child of that problem. If you've ever seen Foreign Correspondent, which I'd wager people have, people have been known yeah. to see Foreign Correspondent. If you've ever seen Foreign Correspondent, this is that movie but um, without cinematography uh, that's up to par, without special effects, without acting, really. But with Dana Andrews in a mustache. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> it's a horrible mustache. Dana's biographer, Carl Rawls, makes the point that it absolutely looks like it's been pasted on. And when you watch the movie, you're really waiting for it to fall off. It's that gable stash that was very popular at the time amongst kind of B-movie leading men. Robert Preston had it too. And it looks bad on everyone. Um, it doesn't even look good on Gable, if I'm being honest here. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of it yeah. as a concept. And it's especially bad on Dana. I just think it's very funny that, that we have this movie being made. Because at this point in Joel McRae's career... He's kind of often and affectionately referred to as being like a poor man's Gary Cooper. Like if Coop turned down a script, they went to Joel. And Foreign Correspondent was one of those movies. And so this, Dana is a poor man's Joel McRae, which, God help us all, shouldn't exist. (laughs) Because Joel's already barely a person, barely qualified. And like he's living like a poor man's Joel McRae. Because he doesn't spend any fucking money. No, Joel, uh, I have have many thoughts on Joel's penny-pinching ways. I have a theory that, you know, so William Wyler began his long, storied, creative rapport, shall you say, with Samuel Goldwyn um, through Joel. Joel ended up inadvertently introducing them because Joel brought a copy of a film that Weiler had directed, starring Joel's wife, Frances D., called The Gay Deception, co-starring Frances Letterer. And he, Joel, wanted Goldwyn to see it and then hire 
Francis because Joel wanted to work at the same studio as his wife. And of course, Goldman was not interested in Francis. He was interested in the director. He wanted to know who this man was, and that was William Wyler, and then, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I think that Joel wanted Goldwyn to hire Francis, not really for the whole warm fuzzies of working with his wife. I think it was because he wanted to save on the commuting costs. Because they would be driving out from Camarillo every day. And that is even, you know, in the 1930s, quite, quite a haul. So that way you wouldn't have to have two cars. It's his own fault for being so cheap and buying out that far. It really is. Today, it's still the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, he has no one to blame but himself. Yeah. Joel is to blame for many things that have happened. (laughs) I did see one very funny comment. So I don't know. Did you see the whole thing that was going on 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 Twitter about the Atlantic article about Trump's new news network? No, I did not. I've been trying to step away from the news because it just makes me very angry and very despondent. There's there's some new, like, right-wing news network, I guess, that Trump is preferring to Fox, whatever. Anyway, so the guy... Oh, yeah, that one. I do know about this. Yes. The guy who wrote the article for the Atlantic compared it to TCM. I guess kind of making like a a jab at, I don't know, like white old people. I don't know. I don't really care. But I thought it was funny because people on Twitter were talking about, you know, different like left-leaning people in old Hollywood and how like they would be disgusted by that remark. And somebody who I'm sure is a very nice person with good intentions mentioned Joel in one of these tweets. And I was like, Joel gave a lot of money to Pete Wilson. And (laughs) Pete Wilson... Joel was not a not a liberal. Joel did have friends of many different stripes. You know, uh, I know that Joel and Francis were friends with you know with, with people who had different varied lifestyles. I mean, you know, gay people. I know that Joel was friends with somebody who one of the writers who ended up kind of being run out as a communist. I mean, Joel did kind of cultivate these these relationships, and he was not a person who discriminated in his personal life. And Joel had a lot to say in his own weird way about um, racism and westerns and stuff. But so Joel probably would not be like a Fox News guy, but. Um, uh, Joel is not the person to make that point. <laughs> Joel would find Trump disgusting, but that's because Trump uses bad. He, he's a mean man. Joel would be one of those people who's like the decorum of it all. Yeah, he hasn't got the you know statesman-like yeah. manner that a president would need. That, that, would, that be would be what offended yeah. Joel the most. Not his policies. He would love the fact the man doesn't like paying taxes. He would he would be very into that probably. Uh, I don't know if Joel like golf, but I think he would like <laughs> those little polo shirts that Trump wears where you can see his nips. I feel like Joel would be into those. <laughs> I love Joel very much. Very, very, very much. But he is at, and back to segue back to the topic of this episode, the kind of the exact polar end of the political spectrum from Dana Andrews, whose politics are really some of the only ones I can respect. Yeah, I th- we were talking about this yesterday because I was like, if, if Joel <laughs> was a himbo, what, what would Dana be? <laughs> and, and you said he was an enigma even to <laughs> himself. That's why he drank. <laughs> I mean, I even um, on this might have been the TCM, um, the TCM word of mouth bumper about about Dana. I can't remember something. But there's something where Steve Forrest, who was Dana's brother. A lot of people don't know that. Don't know that Steve Forrest and Dana were brothers. They came from like a family of like twelve kids. They were very like separated by by age. But Steve kind of made a comment about how it's like nobody really knew why Dana was such an emotionally devastated person, you know, but kind of locked it deep inside himself. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to make talk about a bad movie that Dana made that he didn't want to make. Dana did not want to make this movie. But 
really prior to the Oxo incident, Dana didn't have anything of value attached to his name. I feel like obviously he didn't want to make this movie, but also he didn't have much of a choice. Yeah, because that's just, that's that would be the environment. I don't think anyone affiliated with this movie had much of a choice, to be quite honest with you. He really doesn't get any clout until like two years later. Yeah, basically. I mean, Oxbow is kind of what makes people look at him and think, oh, maybe, maybe he can, maybe that kid can act. But it's he's a slow burn. Dana is very much a slow burn. I think a good comparison would be somebody like William Holden. Holden was in Hollywood for a very long time before he became a star. And really, unlike Holden, Dana was a star for really a, a brief period where he was a star who had the control over his career that we typically think that the position of star affords. But in the same sense, uh, Goldwyn stars really aren't like that. Goldwyn pursued so few projects, really, that the stars um, in his stable don't exactly have the quality ratio in terms of output that you would get working under a, a mogul at a different studio. And I say that with love. Every once in a while, he'd make something and he'd knock it out of the fucking park. But every other day of his life was, was a disaster. He and Farley would have conversations and Farley would be like, I'm breaking my contract. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm moving to Europe. I can't do this. And Goldwyn would be like, you are breaking my heart. I love you. Like you are my own child. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! And then like two days later, Goldwyn would forget that they had the conversation. It's like this podcast. Sometimes you get us at our best, but most of the time you get us at our worst. We can't all be hit after hit after hit. That's uh, true. And I think the thing with Goldwyn, if he were around at any other time, he probably would have gotten away with that, like being really bad all the time but because he was around as you say with so many other moguls that could actually do their jobs it just really reflects poorly on him i mean it, it definitely gets a lot easier once like irving thalberg dies because now who's your competition louis premier has got untrammeled responsibility over at mgm nobody's telling him what to do you know there's not even that kind of like arbiter of quality but i i, I really struggle with, with kind of grasping goldwyn's taste level because sometimes i think it, i think it was higher than he was able to execute but goldwyn also fundamentally was a businessman there's there's a character in kind of a whole arc, I guess, in the Christopher Guest movie, um, For Your Consideration, where Jennifer Coolidge's husband runs a diaper factory and then wants to get into producing. And like Goldwyn embodied kind of that, that. I mean, the movie industry was an industry. It was a business and it was it was the cutting edge. It was it was the new frontier. And Goldwyn... Well, I mean, and as we learn, he was a salesman. And uh, Yes, he was. <laughs> he was quite a salesman. I, I, I have a lot of respect for Goldwyn. I do have a lot of respect for Goldwyn. He's my favorite mogul. I love Goldwyn very much. But I also think it's very funny that, for example, when Farley Granger stepped onto the Fox lot for the first time, he was like, wow, this is what a studio looks like? Because the Goldwyn <laughs> Pictures lot was basically a food truck and some astroturf in, in modern parlance, I think is basically what we'd liken it to. Oh, anyway, so this movie. Uh, this movie sucks so bad. This I don't movie, want to yeah. talk about it. Okay, so this movie basically, okay, Dana Andrews plays an American reporter living in Germany, and he's been, I guess, kind of forced to produce propaganda by uh, the Third Reich. I don't know, his broadcast. He, he has to d d um, speak in code. He does a, like, nightly broadcast yeah. where he goes to America and when his voice comes out the other side, it's a completely different voice. Like, he's talking into a Darth Vader voice changer or something. On the Eastern Front, we have sensational news as Field Marshal Walter von Brauchitsch, Commander-in-Chief of the entire German Army, reports his forces have the Russian bear by the tail. 
and blitz formations are scoring bang-up victories on three sectors against Leningrad, the Crimea, and at the very gates of Moscow. Um, and then he is saying, wow, everything's really great in Berlin. Hope you guys are having a good time too. And really he's littering it with code and saying that obviously things aren't that great in 1942 Berlin. He's also receiving insider information from this guy who he is friends with and the front they use for passing information back and forth is that Dana collects stamps from this man. It's a dartboard movie. Line up a couple dartboards with plot elements on them and bam, bam, foreign correspondent, bam, except with stamp collecting, bam, and, and Nazi hijinks, bam. And there you go. That's the whole movie. Yeah. And Dana is the bane of the captain's life. Captain Von Rau, he's called. He's played by Martin Kozlik. And you found out that he was 5'2". Yes. He's carrying on a part of the legacy of this podcast. <laughs> I think. Todd can't be with us right now, but Martin Kozlik can be. Do you know who Martin Kozlik was in a relationship with? No. No, he was in a, in a relationship with uh, Hans Heinrich Von Twardowski, who is one of the wacky kids in uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He's the one wow. who gets fucking stabbed by Conrad Veidt in the middle of the night. Well, mm-hmm. good for him. Good for him. But then uh, Kostlak married a woman, and then I think it kind of ruined things. And then she killed herself very shortly hmm. after I mean, not so good for him, not, I guess. Not so, not, so, not so good for him. And he uh, played a lot of Nazis. So Yes, I mean... yes. Both of them played Nazis, which, you know, obviously becomes kind of the province of a lot of German actors who are fleeing the Reich and even actors who aren't German, actors of all kinds of, you know, European extraction who've come to Hollywood. Oh, he was in Foreign Correspondent as well. Fuck. <laughs> they just really took Foreign Correspondent and they were just like, man, just like, they couldn't get Andrews in that. They couldn't get Norman Lloyd. Yeah, so the Nazis are trying to get Dana any way they can, like in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> He's just really trying to get him by any means necessary. So... What he does is set up his would-be girlfriend. Yeah, sets her up with Virginia Gilmore, and she... Dana is incredibly taken with her immediately, uh, for no apparent reason. And he, like, steps in when someone's given her trouble at... She's at a restaurant, and she doesn't have her her ration card or something. Yeah, and he steps in. And so he, you know, whisks her away, and she then informs the captain that Dana's passing information because she, like, goes back to his apartment and he's making them spaghetti. Yeah, he's got an apron on. He's got an apron on everything. Wait till you taste the dinner I'm cooking for us. You're cooking? You mean in your apartment? Of course. I can flip a frying pan and shell a pea with the best of them. I have a no recipe I want to try out on you. I hope it's successful. You might have told me. Oh, didn't I tell you? No, you didn't. Oh, how careless of me. My dear Karen, will you do me the honor of dining with me at home? My dear Bill, I should be delighted. <laughs> Do we think Dana could cook? I don't know. My my heart tells me yes. My head's telling me no. I can't remember if we ever... I might have to check. I'll have to check all my sources on that one. <laughs> Insider sources. Insider sources. I mean, books that I own. Yeah, and then she's like brushing dust off her jacket, which apparently she just does when she goes over to people's houses. And takes the stamp that 
Dana God and, you know, holds it over a flame and it's got the secret information written on it. And she's like, oh, well, he's getting the information this way. And then she then tells the captain that. And How does she figure that out, by the way? I mean, I, I knew kind of what she was getting at because of, like, murder on the Orient Express. You know, little Daisy Armstrong. But I didn't think that... <laughs> <laughs> it's like she just sees this this envelope with a with a stamp in it in Dana's wallet, and then she's just like, "Oh, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go take this over to the lamp. I'm gonna look at it." I wouldn't have thought to do that. I would have thought this. I don't know. Like she didn't seem to have a lot of prep at the Nazi headquarters, which no. is hilarious because it says Gestapo headquarters in English. Yes, in in, in English letters. There's no, there's, there's, there's absolutely no pretense in this movie. We're not getting one of those great, like, Ernst Lubitsch style, like, yes, we are in Krakow, but, you know, the signs in English, but also, you know, there's none of that. We got none of that shop around the corner style for similitude. None of that shit is going on here. All the Nazi signs are in English. She informs and it turns out she's informing on her father because her father is the one passing the notes to Dana. Also, okay, wait, wait. Okay, I'm sure you're about to say this. But this really grinds my gears because the stamp collecting community, the, how do you pronounce it? Philatelli? Philately? Philately. That's sure that's not how you pronounce it. Philately? I don't know. Whatever. I'm not a nerd. Uh, Community cannot be that large. And no, so she has to know that her father is involved somehow. Also, all of this is happening at the shop, the stamp shop, belonging to uh, a man named Hans Gruber, which you noted. Yeah, Hans Gruber, just like in Die Hard. He is played by Martini from It's a Wonderful Life. From It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. So Martini is going to bet to sentence uh, Virginia Gilmore's father to death effectively by ratting him out effectively and it's like she really played herself there yeah and then she's all shocked when it turns out that her nazi boyfriend the captain is gonna have her father tortured and tortured executed liquidated she's like whoa whoa, whoa, i didn't see this one coming i'm shocked shocked to find that gambling is going on in here you're winning sir oh thank you very much everybody out at once it cuts to like a really strange scene where both the nazi guards who are torturing this old man are shirtless and kind of oily while they're doing the torturing very muscle beach i don't know what goldwyn knew that we didn't know (laughs) about nazi torture it's a little it's a little brown shirty you know what I mean? Like, I thought that element of the movement had kind of been expunged by this point in time, but Goldman's got the whole homoerotic Nazi stuff <laughs> yeah. playing here. I don't enjoy that. No, it was a bit weird. But anyway, um, Virginia's like, oh, you know, what are you doing to my dad? And it's like, what did you think he was going to be doing to your dad? The guy's wearing, like... The guy's 5'2", clearly wearing platforms so he can be taller than anyone else in the shot. He's got his Baby Spice platforms on. (laughs) And then I guess what happens next is the real meat of the movie, where Dana hatches a plan to get him out of jail. Dana's plan is to dress up as a fake Nazi captain, go to the prison, say that he's a psychiatrist... To the guy who's holding him. I don't know. Warden? Yeah, he's like a doctor warden. Because this is kind of like, this jail has kind of like, almost like a, it's for, you know, the undesirables. You know, it's like a eugenics carnival type deal. This is the nitwit school I was Shanghai to when I was a kid. That one that you had your mommy tell them to tell you that you didn't have donkey brains. I knew I didn't have donkey brains. 
But everybody else did. And also a small child. There's a, a little girl in like leg braces in one of these cells. And it's played almost like it's comedic. Yeah, it's deeply unsettling. Also, the jail kind of looks like it's the dungeon in a Dracula picture. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> I mean, it could be. He essentially is like, oh, well, the Fuhrer told me that you guys can't get this guy to talk about what information he was passing on. And he's like, well, I can. I can make him talk. Uh, and Dana attempts no German accent at all uh, in this ruse. All he's doing is wearing a Nazi uniform. That's his disguise. Well, um, he does He does pronounce a couple words a little oddly. He says ally is a lie, and he says <laughs> Nazi is Nazi, which I think he says in another movie. That can be just down to Dana's general sort of, like, slur. Tiff, put in a clip of police, please. Police? He can't say the word police. Police? <laughs> da police? Police? <laughs> the way you kids drive, that car's gonna hit somebody. Well, no one's complained up until now. Not even the police? But yeah, so then what happens is he's led into the cell and then a period of time passes, probably an hour or so, where, I don't know, the old man gets out and then later Dana comes out not wearing any pants. Because they made love. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like, why didn't no one come to help me? The guy went crazy and like beat me up and took my clothes and left, escaped, took my car. And then the warden is like, oh, well, please don't tell anyone that I let someone escape. We'll just pretend that he's died, um, which is a great plan. They're like, well, we don't have a body. What are we going to bury? Which, you know, I don't think in a Nazi prison it would be hard to come across a body. But No, and I also don't think that there was that much, you know, fidelity to roof um because like then dana's like well surely you can get a body and the warden's like oh well that's illegal though and it's like i mean (laughs) (laughs) oh there's also a point earlier in the movie when he's talking to virginia gilmore and he's like would you like to come up and see my etchings which is a good joke i don't use that anymore we should bring etchings back as euphemism i very much enjoy it well stuff happens (laughs) and they they figure out that Dana's helped the old man escape um, because they discover that Dana had given the old man his passport and then Dana was still in the country without a passport, oh. which seems like a very stupid plan. And Dana's... Did we talk about Dana stealing the warden's clothes? Where he's like, take off your pants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He does that. He does that. <laughs> he, he tells the warden, I need your clothes now. Take off your pants. Because Dana's trying to do like this fake German accent. Take off your pants. And then the warden... So then Dana's walking around <laughs> in like this big kind of boxy, you know... It's got this whole Dave, David Byrne thing going on. And uh, he's like, you're stupid. You're stupid. And it's really good. Dana was a good actor. You're the lunatic. But I don't understand. Where is he? Where is he? He's gone. He took my clothes and my glasses and walked by the very nose of your guard. What? I, I, I thought it was the colonel doctor. Stupid, stupid. Look at me. Take off your pants. Me? Take off your trousers. Yes, yes, yes. And then, once he's been, you know, stitched up, essentially, he's thrown into a concentration camp, which is Hollywood's idea of a concentration camp in 1942, before they had any concept of the real horror. So, Dana's got a cool little hat on. He's digging a trench. I don't know how much time has elapsed this entire time. Yeah. He looks perfectly fine. Definitely kept all that weight on. Um, You said that he'd been keeping snacks in his chest hole. Yes. 
That's exactly what happened. Uh, meanwhile, Virginia has hatched a plan or has is doing her level best to get him released. And by doing that, she's like, okay, Nazi captain, I'll marry you if you help him escape. Which, like... Which, I mean... Who cares? Bitch, we... Like, I don't know how she hasn't learned that you can't trust the Nazis at this point, but she just still does it. And so... The Nazi captain is just like, yeah, sure, I'll sort it out, be totally fine. Meanwhile, he is arranging to have Dana executed if he even attempts to escape. As you would. Um, As you would. It's really down to the captain's secretary, who for some reason is in love with him. Oh, uh, can I just say, you have missed one important moment when one of the English prisoners in the concentration camp gets electrocuted by trying to escape and he kind of like up. in in um jurassic park where the kid climbs up the electric fence and just this is this whole movie is like one interminably long episode of hogan's heroes and it's very deeply offensive oh we did miss the part where where dana is in prison yes. and like and he tricks okay dana this is a good bit Dana tricks the Nazis into turning on his radio broadcast because he wants to see what happens when he's supposed to be on the air at that time. And he's like, I'll give you 50 marks or whatever he gives them. So he gives them money and they put on the radio broadcast and then Dana's chilling in his cell, looking very beautiful, by the way. This is an excellent, really excellent shot of Dana. He's very like languidly. Yeah, you would not shut up. He was leaning back and he's wearing this like cool pinstripe suit. He's not even wearing like a a uniform. They got him like in a pinstripe suit and he looks, it's really stunning. Dana was very beautiful at some points. You know, I'm not, I I must have that okay i'm not i'm not i'm not proud proud. i'm not too proud i'm not proud i'm also not ashamed anyway so dana (laughs) me so dana's sitting there chilling and he's sitting in a cell with um with this guy who i don't know has some sort of thing and he's like you know can you help get me to the united states and dana's like uh maybe like okay thanks for nothing um you're useless (laughs) and so then the broadcast comes on and dana's like (gasps) oh Because it's 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 somebody who sounds like Dana. A lot of money for a few minutes of radio. It's worth it. That's my broadcast. I want to find out what kind of excuse they'll give when I'm not on the air. Perhaps they'll say you're ill. That's okay. All I want is to get my friends looking for me. Sooner or later, the American embassy will find out where I am. Then they'll spring me. Simple. That's very clever. Do you think the American embassy will help me? I have a brother in Chicago. Oh, well, from the capitals of the world. Come in, Berlin, Germany. Hello, everybody. This is Bill Roberts in Berlin. Today is a day in What the devil? What are they doing? It is a day which will be remembered by Germans, Americans, and British alike. So it's the the, the (laughs) Nazis, Martin Kosleck and co., have installed an actor, a German actor, who is doing a Dana impression to deliver this broadcast. And the broadcast is about Pearl Harbor. It's about the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the Dana voice over the radio is saying that it's over for America. This is the end. America's fucked it. We're done. We're toast. The Germans are going to conquer the world. All this shit, right? And so Dana's listening to this and he's like, no! (laughs) And uh, meanwhile, (laughs) this actor is like miming along to Dana, what's clearly Dana speaking with like a slight like German accent, slightly higher pitch, like it's Dana trying to do an impression of himself via some sort of like German Google Translate intermediary. It's very funny and very it is, jarring. It was, it was it was very bizarre just to have that like happen. It was good filmmaking though, I think. It was, it was. Yeah. And, and Dana was very good at acting like he was shocked that, that someone could impersonate his voice. Which I... Because it's a bizarre voice with no rules, no... 
yeah. the regulations. Dana's Dana's faux broad American accent kind of just slips all over the place in terms of how letters and vowels are pronounced. It's it's very odd because obviously that's not how Dana would have sounded. That would be how Dana trained himself to sound as somebody who would have had a southern accent. But it doesn't always work. And sometimes you end up with moments like a lie and police. Yeah. Do you think that had anything to do too with like his very traumatic orthodontic history? We have never talked about that on this podcast. Oh. I mean, no time like the present. No time. Oh, do we want to save it? Do we want to save it for Oxbow? No, because Oxbow, I have got a great, great, great Dana story from a fairly obscure source that I can almost entirely guarantee people listening to this show will not have heard, unless you are okay. one of the Andrews children, in which case, please return my phone calls. I'm a big fan of your dad. <laughs> <laughs> I know that Susan Andrews has read at least like one thing that I've said about Dana in the past, which is scary and a terrifying concept, and I don't I don't like that, but I love your father. Um, big fan. Say hi to your dad for me. Yeah. <laughs> Say hi to your mom for me. Oh, so yeah. So Dana, uh, actually, you know, I don't think it exists anymore because, you know, Hollywood is cruel. But if it does exist, (laughs) I would like to see it. Dana's first screen test. I think this would be the screen test for Goldman. But, you know, you typically would have done screen tests at multiple studios. Um, Has Dana with braces because Dana had braces in the 1930s. Those beautiful little sharky capped little teeth. Those are not those are not Dana's real. That's not his natural chomp. His natural smile. His natural smile. His natural <laughs> bite pattern. You know, he's like little shark. His 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 jaws thing. Uh, I I'm gonna assume it was incredibly fucked up looking. Kind of like you know in um Last Exit to Springfield when they do the little like simulation of what Lisa's gonna look yeah. like. It's just, and it like goes through her face. Yeah, like yeah. it's like poking up. That's what Dana looked like. I think. I just think about Dana eating like a peanut butter sandwich where they're wearing braces. I mean, I just have so many things I have to. And, like, Live wasn't with. there a moment where, wasn't there an anecdote where they got, like, stuck together the top yes, of Yes, the they did. So here's, here's the full excerpt from the Dana Andrews biography, Hollywood Enigma. Sometime in February 1937, Dana attracted the attention of Oliver Hinsdale, quite famous as the man who had trained Robert Taylor, as Dana later recalled. Hinsdale arranged for Dana to meet an MGM casting director. Exactly what transpired is not clear from the story Dana later gave in an interview, although another story had it that his braces got locked during the embrace with the actress doing a scene with him. A letter from Rudy Ament in mid-February noted, Your test at MGM cannot possibly be bad if you felt about it in the way you describe. There is enough in it of you to show you in in a just way. But the MGM casting director told Dana to return to his work as an accountant. He did not think Dana was leading their material. You'll work now and then, but you won't really make a living. Dana, used to conflicting opinions, did not then give up hope of an acting career. So essentially, he the top and the bottom of his jaw got fused together. If you've ever had braces, it is something that's deeply uncomfortable. Things happen all the time. One time when I had mine... I was eating some pasta, arguably one of the softer foods to be eating, and just a bracket came off, oh. completely off. So that was harrowing, uh, as you can imagine. I, I don't but like I have, that. But I have perfectly straight chompers now, so I mean... You and Dana are both success stories. I think it does change the way that you talk, getting your teeth changed. So, I mean, that could have had some impact on his ability to pronounce certain words. Though I haven't noticed, like, a particular pattern with the types of words that he mispronounces, so it could just be a Dana thing. Who knows? I don't know. I'm not an orthodontist. Shockingly enough, you know, I'm not an orthodontist. I did not go to dental school. I barely have any education whatsoever. 
I'm also not a speech language pathologist, but something about the way in which Dana speaks, just every single movie I see strikes me as increasingly bizarre because in every movie there's some bizarre, there's some tick and I'm like, what word is he attempting to say? What, what was that supposed to mean? And you'll, we'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. It even happens in movies where it shouldn't happen. Something like Laura, there will still be moments where it's like, why is that word emphasized? He speaks a little, almost like he's in, he's speaking English as a second language. Virginia Gilmore, who's the female lead in this movie, today best remembered as uh, the wife of Yule Brenner, but um, very interesting actress because she looks almost exactly like Jane Greer, except her eyes are further apart and she has a lisp. Uh, Goldwyn kind of has a thing for actors with odd manners of speaking. Do you think in, an, in another life, Goldwyn would have been like a circus master? One thousand percent and i would have loved that circus i would have gone i would have been clapping there'd be there'd be clowns there'd be there'd be bears probably in chains that's sad it was a different it was a different time it was it a was. very different time mm-hmm. oh and, oh and oh and another like irregu- i'm sorry i just another irregularity also in display in this movie dana has kind of a gene arthur situation going where one side of his face is like a little different in profile from the other so when you look at him and you're seeing his profile and you're seeing his the right side of his face he's got kind of this really beautiful like little like deer like little bambi slope to his nose that knows I love oh so dearly. And then when it's the other side of his face, it's kind of just more like a flank, like a little bit of more of a ski slope. <laughs> and, you know, he doesn't have that cute little upturned little button on that side. I don't know what happened. Maybe that was an orthodontics accident. Maybe that's why he can't speak. Maybe these are the things that tormented him his entire <laughs> life. We'll never know. We'll never know. What happens in this movie? Uh, okay, all right. So Dana... Well, so, yeah, he's yeah. in the concentration camp. He's looking pretty well fed for someone who's in a concentration yeah. camp. Virginia goes and tells him, okay, everything's set. I've sorted the whole thing out. You can escape. No worries. Uh, And it's after she does this that the secretary says, uh, you know how the captain said he was going to sort everything? Well, he was lying. Yeah, this is this is Mona Maris is the actress. And she's like, oh, no. Well, what am I going to do now? So Dana begins his escape and quickly learns that he's going to be killed um, if he attempts the escape. So he, he keeps trying anyway, and because I guess he's, his little mustache is bulletproof, he makes it through, he somehow gets over the fence, much more successful than anyone else escaping um, a concentration camp, and then Virginia is there waiting in a roadster, and they there's like a shootout. They're being chased and shot at by the guards, mm-hmm. and yeah, but they get away, and then a really odd scene happens... Where, for some reason, they go back, I don't know, to her apartment, and the secretary has tipped off the other other people in the Gestapo that the captain was going to let a prisoner escape to try and stop him eloping with Virginia. And then these members of the Gestapo appear and think that Dana is the captain. Mm-hmm. And this really odd scene happens where, where Dana's like, well, I'm not the captain. And then the secretary comes forward and is like, oh, no, he's not the captain. But the Gestapo are like, well, we don't know who you are, so why should we believe you? Which was very odd. If I'm not the captain, and you're not the captain, then who's about to go fly this plane? <laughs> and then I guess they escape to the, the airfield. It ends up with the captain getting shot for being someone who let Bill escape. And Bill is Dana's character's name. So Dana and Virginia, they're on the plane. And it leads to a very odd ending where they're escaping 
Are they going to England? No, Switzerland. Oh, right. They're going to Switzerland. Switzerland, right. And it looks like the... Like, Dana, I don't know, drops his gun or something. Someone drops a gun. And the pilot picks up the gun. And it looks like he's going to shoot Dana. And everyone's like, oh, oh, we got this far. Now another thing's happened. But then the guard's like, oh, you dropped this. And gives him the gun. And it's like, oh, what? So you want to get out of Germany too? And then the guard's like... Yeah, I don't want to stay here. And they just go to Switzerland altogether. I guess this guy, the pilot, is just like their bro now. You dropped uh, your pistol. You mean you want to get out of Germany? Confidentially, it would be a pleasure. Yeah, they're all going to defect. I guess Dana can't really technically defect because he's not a citizen, but that that pilot's like, I'm out of here. Which he does. He does a lot of the in the movie. He's like, I'm an American citizen. Yeah, like that fucking means anything. He respects like the rules of engagement and the rules of battle and the rules of war and the taking of prisoners and stuff. And it's like, Dana, this doesn't matter. These are Nazis. These are Nazis, Dana. They're Nazis, (laughs) as you would say, Dana. This movie sucks. The fact that it's so really ridiculously follows the contours of foreign correspondent down to the whole like relationship between like woman and her father, you know, and the, the plane foreign correspondent obviously has this, you know, elaborate, elaborate ending with this plane. And they're like, Hmm, you know what we have? We have the Van Nuys airstrip and somebody's probably got a plane and we could shoot Dana. Like he's sitting next to it. You know, Dana's kind of crouching next to it. Like I'm next to a plane. And then that's enough. And then he could be on a plane in a soundstage and it will be just like foreign correspondent. And there's just the the, the plane and um, this whole like duplicity between like what's being reported and what is actually being disseminated to the public and the idea of the American as pawn in what at this point in time, well, at the time of foreign correspondent is a, a fundamentally European theater of the war. The Joel McRae character in Foreign Correspondent is ammunition for the unnamed but obviously implied Nazis who are manipulating this peace movement for their own purposes. And obviously by the time that Berlin Correspondent comes out, we have entered the war and the conditions of reporting have changed. But this movie doesn't at all depict any any of those as kind of having taken place dana still has this weird like again the whole i'm an american i'm an american almost like as if like he's still like from a country who are at least kind of presumed to be neutral observers it's like no no dana now you're the enemy yeah like so i guess because like that whole thing happens where it's obviously a lot of the events happen before pearl harbor Mm -hmm. so they have like that but, like, very quickly after that, obviously when Pearl Harbor happens, Dana doesn't change anything about his behavior. And it's really not reading the room, mm-hmm. as it were. I mean, it's true to Dana. It's very true to Dana. Oh, I should also specify. Okay, so this movie's not really a Goldman movie. This is a Fox movie produced through the, you know, the, the domain of Brian Foy, one of the seven little Foy's. Over at Fox, he was part of a, a vaudeville child routine. Uh, of course. Cagney did the Seven Little Foys routine, but whatever. So this is produced under the ages of uh, Brian Foy over at Fox. However, um, I'm going to refer to this as a as a gold production because Goldwyn's not really affiliated with this movie, I don't think, probably. But Dana is still a Goldwyn star. And this movie feels like a Goldwyn movie. So we do know that this isn't a Goldwyn movie, but in spirit it is. In all... I mean, it's got the mark of Goldwyn. Yes. By association. Yes. 
And again, the actors are Goldwyn Gilmore and Andrews are both Goldwyn stars. Well, I don't I guess Virginia Gilmore really debate whether or not she's a star, but they're Goldwyn actors in the same sense that Anna Sten was a Goldwyn actress, even if she couldn't really act. But if, if Goldwyn were not alive, horrific thought, <laughs> but if Goldwyn George Bailey'd himself out of existence, this movie would not be. So I think it's important to note. Also, you know, obviously as we've established, Dana went through a whole raft of screen tests and nobody wanted to hire him. So Goldwyn saw something in him. I don't know what it was. I wish I knew. Probably the same things I find so odious about him. Uh, anyway, uh, this movie sucks. What were we talking about? Oh, right. Do you know what day this movie came out? No. Came out in 1942 on September 11th. You go from December 7th being like the date that everybody, all Americans know intuitively. That's a date marked on the calendar then to September 11th, like really like eclipsing that in the narrative. So symbolically, I think it's a, it's a little interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, also, the the fact that it was made and released at a time that was a shift in the way that Americans were perceiving the war. Like, obviously, it's a shift from how it's perceived in Foreign Correspondent. And I guess any film that's made that's, like, pertinent to the war during this time is interesting to look at just from a contemporary angle. Like, yes. what were people feeling and thinking and doing? I mean, it's not as interesting as something like Arise, My Love, where they were making it as things happen and incorporating that into the narrative. But it's still interesting to see how other people took it and interpreted it and, you know, were making sense of what was going on at the time. I don't know if this is particularly successful in, I guess, building up a sense of what was happening in I do. the thought it's not. The heads of Americans, but... <laughs> Very few movies can kind of touch upon war as adroitly as something like Arise My Love. The attitude towards Nazism that comes across in this movie is an interesting jump. Because this really, like, I compared it to Hogan's Heroes earlier, but it really does kind of lay the foundation for the Hogan's Heroes-style depiction of perpetrators of genocide as being kind of bumbling, ineffectual fools. And it's a little unsettling, I think, in the same way that Hogan's Heroes doesn't play anymore. Hogan's Heroes is, is, is really weird. I don't know if they ever play that in Australia. But it kind of straddles the line where you're like, okay, did people at the time find this amusing because it was a, a lighthearted way of looking at something that for so many people was an incredibly traumatic part of their life experience? Or did people just not think about it that way? Or did people just think this show sucked and it just kind of stayed on the air like everything that's on CBS now? Like Blue Bloods or whatever <laughs> bullshit. Uh, I guess it's it'll be kind of like, I think it happens every kind of generation with MASH. It happened. Yeah. I think it was kind of an inverse thing with uh, the Vietnam War where you had movies like Apocalypse Now and uh, Full Metal Jacket, things like that, where it was definitely a lot more serious in tone, mm-hmm. which, you know, sometimes you got to be serious. Can't be joking all the time, but I, I think it's a it's a thing that happens. People need brevity and escapism to some degree to cope with things that have happened to them, or at least that's the perception of filmmakers mm. and um, TV producers. I don't know where this film particularly falls in that, though, because it's not really... Like, it, it toes the line at becoming a, a bit of a romp, especially when Dana, you know, whips out his totally spies disguise... It's got kind of a carry-on, like, feel about it. You know, like the carry-on movies. But, like, without any gags. So, yeah. I mean, it's... 
A really bad carry-on movie. Really bad movie in general. No, it, totally. And I also understand that. I know that for a lot of actors who had been forced um, to leave Europe, who were living as exiles in the United States, there was a perverse joy in playing Nazis and in mocking Nazis. Totally get that. Um, somebody like like Martin Koss, like who, well, obviously, since we know he was in a relationship with Hans Heinrich von Twardowski, would not be viewed as being kind of prime material uh, by the Reich. I, I understand why that somebody would, would derive so much enthusiasm and so much kind of fun and sense of agency from from playing Nazis in that way. I totally get it. And I know that there were actors who, I think Leonid Kinski is one of those who did not want to appear on Hogan's Heroes because he didn't find Nazism funny. But there were many for whom that was their way of processing it. And also, you know, work is work. But yeah, this movie is totally like time out of space in that sense. You know, it doesn't even have that temporal separation from the events in which you can kind of make that excuse for anyone other than those actors in this film who would be directly impacted by the events that are going on in Europe. It doesn't have a smack of anything kind of rebellious. But, you know, World War II is a weird subject in the movies. It's not really until the war is almost over that we start to get introspection about it, something like Walk in the Sun or the much maligned, and I think really much misunderstood best years of our lives. I I don't know. I don't think the world, I think a really definitive great movie about World War II is really kind of still waiting to be made. I think there are great movies about World War II, something like Bridge on the River Kwai, but I don't think Hollywood is the prime way of interrogating that. No, there's no kind of like all quiet on the Western front Yeah, for the Second World War. I mean, yeah. there might be for certain aspects of it but I think because the Second World War was so complex and had so many layers and so many different avenues of misery uh, whereas like the First World War was quite concentrated into like one kind of experience Mm -hmm. I mean obviously there were multiple kinds of experiences that happened in the First World War but like there was sort of a unifying experience like the first experience with trench warfare the first experience with modern artillery whereas with the Second World War because there were so many avenues of warfare there was the western front the eastern front there was the holocaust and like there's a lot of different layers that i don't think could be adeptly explored through uh, a single movie yes. that could encapsulate the war. And I think a lot of it, too, is that, the, is that really brilliant Hollywood filmmaking about war oftentimes is about the human cost of going to war. And you couldn't make something like The Big Parade about World War II because The Big Parade ends on a pacifist note. And the idea is, like, what was sacrificed and what was gained. And for a lot of people, there was this feeling that World War I was a zero-sum game that it had wrought destruction and then it would just kind of germinate. And then certainly by the time World War II came about, that what what had it really accomplished? Whereas you obviously couldn't make a movie that, uh, that way about World War II because of the impetus behind the involvement in World War II. You know, obviously there's a very specific kind of evil that had to be vanquished from the earth, you know. So you can't really make a pacifist narrative about how, really, we should think about killing each other because it's like, well, there's not really much to think about when it comes to killing Nazis, you know. So, yeah, I think when it comes to films made around this time about the war, ones that seem to interest me more are the ones that are set kind of back at home mm-hmm. um, and obviously dealing more with the women's perspective and what was happening on the home front, because that's probably a little bit more true to life mm-hmm. uh, than any of the sort of 
more action focused in the warfare kind of ones because obviously that was a borderline propaganda. Yeah. Um, so I think something like oh fuck the Ginger Rogers Joseph Cotton movie. Oh, um, I'll be seeing you. Yeah. And I was gonna say something like Mrs. Miniver or Casablanca. You know. These are the movies that convey... A little bit more nuanced in yeah. their depiction of the war. And I always find them a lot more interesting anyway. That said, I do like Dana Andrews. Uh, and he never went to the Second World War. He didn't. So, I mean... <laughs> he did not. And Dana didn't go to second the Second World War. Dana's draft information, I guess, said that, oh, he's fine, but we're just not going to use him. You know, obviously, because there was a pressure from the studios not to send the actors off to war. That was understood. Dana is not really high in the pecking order of Hollywood, but he is fairly high in the pecking order over at Goldwyn, because Goldwyn's got, like, five people on the payroll. Um, and also, you know, Dana was uh, a married man with children and he was not old but Dana would have been in his mid-30s really early to mid-30s and I know that somebody like McRae didn't have to go off to war because Joel had his ranch and there was the understanding that by keeping agriculture going that that was more of an asset but Joel who at the time could you know leverage his star power in a way that somebody like Dana couldn't didn't want to make movies about the war because he felt like if I'm not actually going off and risking my ass I shouldn't get to you know play one on TV you know it was kind of his attitude towards it which is something I can respect that's not an attitude that other people took John Wayne (laughs) kind of play acting at being a soldier play acting at being a good boy who blows up Nazis you know but I think also Dana's got that it's really weird that you you take this movie and then play it up against Oxbow Incident or Best Years of Our Lives because Dana's always very good at playing a haunted you know somebody who has um, a lot of demons which is because he was in real life but it's interesting to see how much his performances deepen over time because you don't get any shades of the actor that he's ultimately going to end up becoming by Best Years of Our Lives. I think we're going to do Best Years of Our Lives eventually on this podcast. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the scene in which he's having his 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 nightmare about the war and he wakes up crying and that whole kind of very brief and not really verbal discussion of PTSD in this particular generation I think that that's that's just it's, it's a really profound take on it that you don't see in this this movie at all. I don't think this movie has any profundity to it, and it's not supposed to because it's a B movie that no one was going to see more than once, backstopping something else that people actually or didn't show up to see or at all. Yeah, they'd be asleep or gone by the time this movie started. I would kill Goldwyn for putting me in this kind of shit. But I don't know. I, I, so this movie really has very little to recommend it. I would say if you like Dana, Dana's always good, even when he's not. And if you're interested in, in depiction of seeing Hollywood's understanding of the war change in real time, I think it's interesting. But it's it's no foreign correspondent. It's not even espionage agent. I mean, if you want to see Dana with a tiny little mustache, go for it. Or just Google Dana Andrews in Berlin Correspondent and then don't watch the movie. Um, <laughs> also, this movie has really... I don't want to... Again, I hate shitting on cinematography because I understand, you know, when you're making bees, you got to just, you know, it's one after the other after the other. But this movie has really terrible just, like discrepancy between day and night shots, oftentimes within the same sequence. It'd be like, day shot, night shot, day shot, night shot, day shot, night shot. And it's supposed to be all one fluid movement. That drives me insane. I hate that. That's why they shot on soundstage is to avoid things like that. A couple other notes. One, there's a character named Brad DeBar which made me think of Elle DeBarge, 1980s pop star. Dana's got this whole speech where he's like, she drank my wine. Fräulein Karen, you know, I'm going to remember you. Everything that's beautiful. Berlin, November 41. A very blonde girl 
I remember she drank my wine on Friday night, and the next day turned her own father over to the Gestapo. Heil Hitler. He's got his whole bogey, like, in a lonely place monologue thing, which is always really funny to see something like that, because, again, the writers are trying to regain some of their dignity in producing this swill. Um, this is also written by Steve Fisher and Jack Andrews, two names I did not recognize and therefore assumed were pseudonyms because they were embarrassed by this shit, but they're not. Uh, and Steve Fisher <laughs> actually was a fairly well-known writer. He wrote, um, I Wake Up Screaming, uh, which became the, the Victor Mature noir with, with Carol Landis and Betty Rabel. Mm-hmm. And he also wrote a couple of the kind of noir uh, novel adaptations of the late 40s. He did uh, Lady in the Lake, the Robert Montgomery movie, which I think is a fun movie. I love that movie. I love a gimmick. You solve the murder. I love that kind of shit. That's good stuff. I love Montgomery when he's blowing his nose on a paper napkin and shoving it in my face. Or when he's working for Eisenhower and subverting my civil rights as an American. Big fan. <laughs> Uh, well, one more thing. Okay, so uh, this movie is directed by Eugene Ford. Nobody knows who he is. Doesn't matter. He made a couple of Tom Mix westerns. Uh, he made a couple of the Charlie Chan movies, that kind of shit. However, he did make, I've never seen this, but I think we know we're gonna have to watch it, a movie called Pier 13 from 1940, which is a remake of Me and My Gal from 1932, except it's a mystery this time. How? What is the mystery? I don't know, but now we're gonna have to watch it. Also, the downgrade... From Spencer Tracy and Joan Bennett to Lloyd Nolan and Lynn Berry is just like, that's in the basement. That's like that's almost insulting. Me and My Gal is one of my favorite, favorite movies of that era. One of my favorite Spencer Tracy movies in general, I think. One of my favorite Joan Bennett movies in general. But I think Tracy is like dynamite in that movie. So that's sad. <laughs> These movies all suck. Um, it would be very depressing to be any of the people involved in Berlin Correspondent for different reasons, you know. I'm glad I wasn't alive back then. I would not have had a good time, I don't think. No, purely from the um, mustaches alone. All right, well, I guess we need to give this our customary rating. Right. How many Dana Andrews voice changes out of five would you give this? I would give this two and a half. Dana Andrews voice changers out of five. How many um, illicit Soviet stamp transactions would you give this movie out of ten? One. <laughs> oh, that's it's that brutal. Is so harsh. But... You should give it two or three just for the fact that there's a character named Hans Gruber who owns uh, a stamp collecting shop where the nerds like to hang out and swap cards like it's fucking Magic the Gathering, and it's also it's Martini, and also he sends a man to his death. <laughs> That's deserving of 30% to me. No, I don't think I will. I won't be peer pressured into anything. So, yeah, I mean, watch this movie. Don't watch this movie. I mean, if you do, don't blame us. If you hate it. So do we. So do we. Thanks, Dana Andrews, for for everything, for the memories, for the memes. <laughs> Hopefully we get to review a better movie of his. We're, we're going to be doing Oxbow Incident this summer. I will be writing Oxbow. And I will say to the audience, uh, we will pick up production as soon as you pick up on comments. So, um... <laughs> As soon as Todd stops falling down flights of stairs, like Jack Palance is throwing if her up a building. Todd to stop injuring herself. I mean, don't you have any compassion? <laughs> Think about it. You're the reason why Todd cannot stand up on her own two feet. <laughs> it's the shame she feels from nobody commenting on our podcast. She's walking a dog in Heelys as a cry for help, okay? So if you don't want that on your conscience, please leave us a comment on any of our social channels. 
or at BasketPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also comment on our WordPress uh, if however many characters is not enough for you to express your disgust and or joy. And yeah, um, hopefully lockdown can end um, safely and quickly as possible. But I mean, considering the president of the United States, that just doesn't seem feasible. Everybody take care of yourselves. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Even if you have a Dana Andrews mustache. Because it would be tempting to, like, touch that. But uh, don't. And, um, yeah, that's it. That's the show. Yeah, everyone look after yourselves. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>